Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Hear now God's Word. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. We will get to this text a little bit later in the sermon, but first I want to set the table. It's evident that we live in tumultuous times, but we should remember that this really isn't new. All times have been tumultuous. Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. Human nature has not changed, and tumult rises and falls like the tide. History is full of twists and turns, wars and revolutions, winners and losers. And so it is not surprising to us that the spoils go to the victors. This includes statues and monuments which are erected or torn down, and it also includes the writing of history books and laws. And this is why it takes a generation for a revolution to be completed. The people have to be re-educated, and this is why control of the schools is so important. Everyone has to become woke. And by the way, in case you're like me, terms change all the time, and I go, what? What is woke? Uh, Well, the Urban Dictionary defines woke as being aware and knowing what's going on in the community. It also mentions its specific ties to racism and social justice. But let me just say that wokeness isn't new just as injustice isn't new. I remember some years ago in a church I was in, another place I'd been involved, and our church had been involved for many years in the pro-life movement. I'd been the um, chairman of the Right to Life organization. We had done many, many things, and this fellow had been in the church most of that time. And he saw something on the news, and he came up to me one Sunday after church and demanded, wanted to know when our church was going to get involved in the pro-life movement. Now, he had never been to any of those things that we'd had. We'd had meetings at the church, we'd had announcements, we'd had all that, but suddenly he was woke. Well, today I want to begin to address the most current issues, specifically of racism and the so-called cancel culture. I started out to address both those, and like often happens, the sermon grew, and uh, we will not get to both of those today. Uh, Allow me to then offer this disclaimer up front. The subject of racism, this is a vast subject, and it cannot be reduced to simplistic declarations or slogans. I only hope to make a basic statement regarding a biblical view of racism and then later a biblical view of history. I want to acknowledge first Doug Jones, some of you know who that is, has been a friend of mine for the past 30 years, who wrote an article in 1996 that was titled, The Biblical Offense of Racism. 
Much of what I'll say this morning came from that article and also from the influence of my mentor, Dr. Greg Bonson. So let's start then this morning with the subject of racism, which is a grievous sin wherever it's found, whether in our hearts or in society, it is to be repented of. Racism is the view that one race is inferior to another and is most often taken as a self-evident truth. Everyone knows that Gentiles are dogs. You know about those people, don't you? Jigaboos, jungle bunnies, coons, camel jockeys, chinks, nips, dagos, gooks, Jew boys, kikes, greasers, wops, wetbacks, and I could go on and on and on. And I hope that makes some of us feel a little uncomfortable, maybe a lot uncomfortable. It's as old as human history. Mankind has been mistreating and enslaving one another at every turn. Remember, sin is what's wrong with the world. Therefore, it's common for one group to subjugate another group and to do so with boatloads of injustice. Scripture very clearly condemns such racist attitudes and actions. The catalog of atrocities committed by individuals, groups, and even nations against other individuals, groups, and nations, all because they thought they were superior to others, is a long and a very, very gruesome list. To be honest, many of us grew up in a culture that fostered and cultivated certain racist attitudes and language, which then translated into practice. Now, I want to say something, though, about racism and unbelievers. Many people are aggrieved over the sin of racism, which is often but not always real. But I want to point out that unbelievers have failed to justify their complaint. Now, it's another subject for another day, but when people in general, believers and unbelievers alike, feel a sense of injustice, that's because they're made in the image of God and the law of God's written in their hearts and they live in God's world and that's why they perceive and feel real injustice. And it is sad that sometimes it's the world that has to point out that injustice to the church And that's another subject I'll be happy to address on another occasion. So unbelievers know it's wrong, or as Dr. Van Teel used to say about unbelievers, they can count, but they cannot account for counting. They know it's wrong, but they're not quite sure why it's wrong. Doug Jones observed this, the non-Christian has no ethical basis to determine the right thing, the wrong thing, the solution, the problem, or to offer any hope for the future or an understanding of the past. Though racism and other sins are in fact widely condemned by unbelievers, the truth is that the only response that a humanistic worldview can offer is despair or silence. 
historically non-Christian thinking has actually provided a basis for racist attitudes and thinking, Darwin being chief among them. Evolution necessarily draws sharp distinctions between individuals and groups of individuals, with some, of course, being more fit or advanced than others. In fact, Planned Parenthood was born to help deal with inferior people and very specifically including the black race. Here are a few forgotten quotes from Planned Parenthood's founder, Margaret Sanger, and I assure you it's only a few of the quotes, just as a sample. From an article she wrote called, uh, in, published, it's called The Pivot of Civilization, 1922, quote, we are paying for and even submitting to the dictates of an ever-increasing unceasingly spawning class of human beings who never should have been born at all. From, a plan, from an article titled, A Plan for Peace, published in 1932, she said, the government should give certain dysgenic groups in our population their choice of segregation or sterilization. And finally, the essence of Margaret Sanger from an article, The Eugenic Value of Birth Control Propaganda, 1921, quote, Today, eugenics is suggested by the most diverse minds as the most adequate and thorough avenue in the solution of, of racial, political, and social problems. Notwithstanding what we know about Sanger, each year since 1966, Planned Parenthood has continued to hand out the Margaret Sanger Award to honor the legacy of its founder, and liberals covet that award. The 2014 recipient, Nancy Pelosi. When Hillary Clinton received the award in 2009, she said during her acceptance, quote, I, uh, it was a great privilege when I was told that I would receive this award. I admire Margaret Sanger enormously. I am really in awe of her. There are a lot of lessons we can learn from her life, from the causes she launched and fought for and sacrificed for greatly. These Darwinian ideas led to a paternalistic view of so-called inferior races which of course meant the superior races needed to take care of these poor children. In their fourth debate at Charleston, Illinois on September the 18th, 1858, Abraham Lincoln made his position clear, and I quote, I will say then that I am not, nor ever have been, in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races. He went on to say that he opposed blacks having the right to vote, to serve on juries, to hold office, and to intermarry with whites. Now, so that's Darwinianism. A second stream of unbelieving thought has given us collectivism, or socialism, which results from rejecting a biblical view 
of personal responsibility. Our culture has turned away from a biblical worldview in an attempt to free themselves of the notion of sin and personal responsibility. Our culture, then, rejects sin as the result and responsibility of individuals. Therefore, it must explain evil in that culture by imputing wickedness to some other aspect of the world. If the individual is not the source of evil, then it's natural to make some collective group the source of evil. In this century, collectivists have often blamed racial groups for cultural decay and, quote, impurity. You know, the Asians, the yellow peril, blacks, Jewish communities. We're well aware of the millions of individuals slaughtered because of the alleged evil of their race. Historian Paul Johnson comes close to the point when he notes that Christianity was content with a solitary hate figure to explain evil, Satan, but modern secular faiths needed human devils and whole categories of them. The enemy, to be plausible, had to be an entire class or race. Ironically, this same tendency to demonize entire classes of people also attributes racist attitudes to whiteness. Thus, to be white is inescapably racist. And in another twist of irony in our generation, some minority groups have been treated indulgently in their lawlessness because they are held to be incapable of behaving any other way. This also is a form of racism and disrespect. And so I want to also say a word about slavery. Actually, more than a word. Several words. The vast majority of slavery was and is immoral, including the enslavement of black people in the U.S. We should note that indentured servitude is in a separate category and a topic for another day. Now, I said including the enslavement of black people because black people aren't the only people who have been enslaved. Israel spent 430 years enslaved in Egypt, and God's liberation of them was one of the greatest redemptive acts of God. It prefigured our being set free as slaves to sin. Christ redeemed us. He purchased us and set us free. The gross injustices of slavery have occurred to all sorts of people of many races from many different ethnic heritages because, it, because it's a sin problem and sin is a universal problem. Economist Thomas Sowell pointed out that more whites were, were brought as slaves to North America than blacks brought as slaves to the United States or to the 13 colonies from which it was formed. White slaves were still being bought and sold in the Ottoman Empire decades after the blacks were freed in the United States. If anyone, black or white, believes that slavery was only an African experience, then they've got it completely wrong. 
The Irish slave trade began when 30,000 Irish prisoners were sold as slaves to the New World. The King James I Proclamation of 1625 required Irish political prisoners be sent overseas and sold to English settlers in the West Indies. Ireland quickly became the biggest source of human livestock for English merchants. The majority of the early slaves in the New World were actually white. From 1641 to 1652, over 500,000 Irish were killed by the English and another 300,000 were sold as slaves. Ireland's population fell from about 1.5 million to 600,000 in one decade. Families were ripped apart as the British didn't allow Irish fathers to take their wives and children with them across the Atlantic. This led to a helpless population of homeless women and children. Britain's solution was to auction them off as well. During the 1650s, over 100,000 Irish children between the ages of 10 and 14 were taken from their parents and sold as slaves in the West Indies, Virginia, and New England. In this same decade, 52,000 Irish, mostly women and children, were sold to Barbados and Virginia. Another 30,000 Irishmen and women were also transported and sold to the highest bidder. In 1656, Cromwell ordered 2,000 Irish children be taken to Jamaica and sold as slaves to English settlers. And we could spend untold hours recounting the stories of human slavery. And it's still going on today. That's not to justify anything. It is all an abomination. As Christians, we stand with the Bible in condemning every immoral and sinful act against any other human being, regardless of race or ethnicity. We should never minimize or make light of such wickedness. On the other hand, we have a world that has climbed up on their high horse and with simplistic and often ignorant uh, arrogance pronounced judgment upon people and societies that they never knew and certainly don't understand. We are being presented with a false antithesis that says, if you're truly against the injustices of racism, then you must support uh, Black Lives, the, the Black Lives Matter movement. I want to tell you something. You better beware of the substitution of slogans for thought. Black Lives Matter is a slogan. And like all clever slogans, it is intended to bypass thought and and, and evoke feelings. And so let's be clear. Black Lives Matter is a Marxist, anarchist movement that supports abortion rights and promotes LBGT plus movement. And so before you buy the t-shirt, or participate in some virtue-signaling gesture to them, or make a contribution, or join one of their rallies, be sure you know what it is you're signing up for. 
Now, there are a couple of things we Christians need to settle in our minds and hearts initially. First, the Word of God is our only rule of faith and life. It is the infallible, inerrant, inerrant, and authoritative standard. Second, we are not embarrassed by God or His Word, come what may. To quote Martin Luther, unless I'm convinced by Scripture and plain reason, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. So help me God. Amen. So what does the Bible say about racism? This is going to be a fast run. We're not, there's a lot more it says, but I want to give a flyover here, please. Revelation 5, 9, Christ is the King of kings, the Lamb of God, who shed blood, has purchased his people from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. We could stop right there. Christ's gospel will lead, Isaiah 2, 3, all the nations and many peoples to stream into the kingdom. Psalm 22, verse 27 and 28, all the families of the nations will worship before Christ, for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. The gospel makes race insignificant. There is no religiously important category for race in the biblical scheme. The only two groups who figure into the history of redemption are covenant keepers and covenant breakers, believers and unbelievers. And believers, by the way, don't hate unbelievers. We love them. We want to bring the gospel to them. Since Christ, as the Lord of His church, has given us such great promises, we should expect the ethical imperatives of Scripture would prohibit social, uh, racial prejudice and racist practices and attitudes, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Think about the sixth commandment. The first biblical argument, then, against racism is found right there in the Ten Commandments, in the Decalogue. The sixth commandment forbids us to take the life of another, and Christ argues that the implications of this commandment are far deeper than simple murder. The Lord teaches us that the commandment also condemns mockery and expressed, expressed, uh, unexpressed hateful heart attitudes. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, You fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Jesus rescues this law from those who had clouded it with their human traditions. We are forbidden to have or act on hateful attitudes toward anyone. Then we're forbidden from doing such things as an individual uh, of another race to an individual of another race. So the Westminster Larger Catechism expounds the Sixth Commandment as forbidding, among other things, sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, provoking words, oppression, 
striking, wounding, and whatsoever else tends to the destruction of the life of any. Moreover, the larger catechism explains that the sixth commandment obligates us to preserve the life of others. Quote, by charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceable, mild and courteous speech and behavior, forbearance, readiness to be reconciled, patient, bearing and forgiving of injuries and requiting good for evil, comforting and succoring the distressed, and protecting and defending the innocent. Racist attitudes stand in stark contrast to these prescriptions. The law of God goes to the heart of the issue. To be a racist is to be a killer. Moreover, since all, the, all of mankind is descended from our original parents, and our parents were made in the image of God, all of their descendants reflect the image of God as well. This point brings out the particular heinousness of racist attitudes. Now, I want to just say some have gone so far as to twist Scripture to suggest that some races are not actually fully human. They twisted Scripture to say that. The fact is, to treat a member of another ethnic group as inferior is to despise the face of God, and to despise the face of God is to invite His wrath. Our opening text for today's sermon is Paul's instruction from Philippians 2, 1-4, and this is clearly applicable to the issue of racism. I'm going to read it again. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. And so the early church was facing the problems uh, of, of entrenched systematic racism. The gospel of Christ introduces a radical new order that restores what? Communion among all people from every tribe and every tongue. That is the gospel. That's what it does. And if it doesn't do that, then you didn't get the gospel. The passage informs us that we are to seek to honor other persons in every situation. The motivation for unity is set out in verse 1. You should want to live this way because you know the comfort that comes from being in Christ and belonging to this family. You used to primarily identify yourself with other groups, even your nuclear family, your race, your region of the country. But now, you first and foremost identify yourself with Christ and the household of God. This is why Niang Thang from Myanmar can walk into my house with his wife and in five minutes 
we have recognized that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. This is why we work with Russians and Uzbeks to expand the kingdom of God. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, in this passage, Paul says that we're to bring our thinking in line with each other. The things that unite us in this, it's the gospel. Suddenly, a bunch of insecure, selfish people have been transformed and have started thinking the same. We're reading the same book. We have the same God. We have the same ethical standard. We're on the same trip. We're going to the same place. We came from the same place. Loving each other completely and regarding everyone else as superior to ourselves. What seemed impossible is now attained in Christ. Sounds like a miracle to me. And this is how the world will know that we are disciples. This is why racism within the church is especially heinous because it goes directly against the gospel. Galatians 3, 28 and 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For all, for all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's children. Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In Acts 17, where Paul is addressing the Athenians at the Areopagus, listen to what he says to them. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art or man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance... God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Moreover, the state, the government, is to be a colorblind institution. Not giving preference to one race over another. In this sense, justice is blind in regard to the race and status of individuals. It does not matter what color you are. We can see this standard of colorblindness laid out in the case law in Scripture. Deuteronomy 1, 16 and 17. Then I command your judges at that time saying, commanded your judges at that time saying, Here are the cases between, between your brethren and judge righteously between a man and his brother or, or the stranger who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid in any man's presence, for the judgment is God's. The case that is too hard for you, bring to me and I will hear it. 
Leviticus 24.22, you shall have the same law for the stranger and for the one from your own country, for I am the Lord your God. Though there are many verses which require the civil authority to be impartial, the passages just cited demonstrate that the law was to be equally administered to those outside of Israel who might be of any race. The civil authority is to protect life, due process, and property without regard to the race of those in question. This one requirement has great implications for past and present civil governments. And we need not, indeed we must not, side with the current anti-biblical insurrectionist to see this basic point. We don't need to agree with those who are wanting to burn down the country. And we don't need to participate with them to see this point. Historically, the white American church has been notorious and even infamous for violating biblical standards against other races. Racist attitudes are biblically precluded from the sphere of the church. I was a boy in a big church. I remember the first time a black man came to our church. We had a balcony. No one ever sat in the balcony until that day. And he was ushered to sit by himself in the balcony. That's terrible. Racist attitudes then are precluded. As an agency of mercy, the church has an obligation to speak peace to the racial conflict which has been entrenched in our culture. Moses' second marriage was to a black woman, an Ethiopian. Numbers 12.1, Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. We know that the woman has been made part of the covenant due to the Lord's declaration just a few verses later in the same context that Moses was, quote, is faithful in all my household. Miriam and Aaron are bitter and rebellious because the woman is a foreigner and she is of a different race. And the consequences of this bitterness and rebellion is that, quote, verse 9 of that same chapter, the anger of the Lord burned against them. Moreover, in what is perhaps an ironic judgment, the Lord punishes Miriam. Verse 10, And when the cloud departed from above the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became leprous, as white as snow. Then Aaron turned toward Miriam, and there she was, a leper. The only ground Scripture gives for prohibiting a marriage is religious in nature. Believers are not permitted to marry unbelievers. And this prohibition is repeated throughout Scripture since it deals with the antithesis between covenant-keeping and covenant-breaking, belief and unbelief. And once again, we see that race is insignificant in the biblical scheme. So, wrapping it up here, 
racism is a sin. That doesn't mean that there are no differences between races or cultures or individuals. There are always differences. I thought about this. You know, pick, talk, let's start talking about any other race, nationality, ethnicity. I promise you this. There's somebody in that race, in that nationality, in that ethnicity that's smarter than you, that's stronger than you, that's more talented than you, that's funnier than you, that's better looking than you. Well, I'm tempted to say, shut up. But just be humble. Be thankful. Be full of grace. There are always differences between people, men and women, young and old, north and south, east and west. And I am grateful for many of those differences because they are gifts from God and we should be grateful and learn from them. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red, yellow, black, and white. They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. In John 1 John chapter 3, verse 18, he addresses us. And here's how John addresses us. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. I'm going to close with a quote from T.S. Eliot that is a transition for our next talk. I won't be in the pulpit next Sunday, but when we come back, I want to continue some of these thoughts. Eliot says this, The world is trying the experiment of attempting to form a civilized but non-Christian mentality. The experiment will fail. But we must be very patient in awaiting its collapse. Meanwhile, redeeming the time so that the faith may be preserved alive through the dark ages before us to renew and rebuild civilization and save the world from suicide. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our Creator, who has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, we submit our thoughts to you so that we might see the world the way you see it. Thank you for sending your Son to rescue us from slavery to sin and to redeem us and to set us free. We rejoice that you so love the world. Help us now to be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. May we let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each of us esteem others better than ourselves. And may we learn more and more to look out not only for our own interest, but also for the interest of others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. 
After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I thought about this. If a person doesn't like associating with people from other races and nations, they are going to hate the new heavens and the new earth. In fact, the new heavens and the new earth have already begun here on this old earth with the inauguration of the kingdom of God. That's what the church is. We call this communion. And the communion table is open to every person who is in Christ. People who harbor any animosity toward any other person are not in communion and should not be at this table pretending that they are. Perhaps we need to get over ourselves. Stop acting like we're the center of the universe. We should stop being easily offended and holding on to grudges and nurturing prejudice. Listen carefully again to the words of today's sermon text before we come to the table. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind or humility of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. O God, our shield, protect us now as you have in the past from the deceptions of Satan. Cause us to cherish the blessings of your pure word as our fathers in the faith have delivered it to us. Give our leaders courage, wisdom, and zeal to proclaim the gospel faithfully. Give us the desire to support the work of your kingdom with the means you have provided. Stir up the hearts of our sons and daughters to eager service in your church. Send laborers into your harvest. And give your word free course to bring the joy of salvation to the many who are yet in darkness. What a heritage you have given to your church. We have the gospel in all its truth. Teach us to appreciate that godly persons were willing to sacrifice their lives for these treasures. Keep us in this truth and make us instruments for its preservation for generations to come. May we possess and embrace your word, your sacraments, and your discipline. And most of all, may we, as the true church, manifest your love. We ask this in the name of Jesus, who lives and reigns with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God through all eternity. Amen. Amen. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.